This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Julian K. Jarbo, the author of the Lambda Award-winning short story collection, Everyone on the Moon is Essential Personnel. More of their work can be found on their website, juliankjarbo.com. Julian, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Danny. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for bringing your award-winning self into the studio. I know. That's so fun to put in a bio now. Now I can put it right there and be like, actually, um, as you know, as a person of award-winning experience, yeah, really. <laughs> as a person of literary award history. No, yeah, I don't know. It's it's so fun because um, I'm always of two minds about these things. Uh, either awards are very fake, or my friends are winning them, and so then they're real. Um, and so uh, it's fun. They're fr- they're fun. You can opt into the fun of that. Oh, yeah. No, if someone I know and like is winning an award, it's just a great little extra that makes life fun. And if, you know, nobody I know won an award, it's a deeply troubling system that prioritizes achievement over, you know, the human spirit. And uh, we should all immediately uh, move to a farm. Yes, exactly. It's good if it's me and my people. And it's bad if I don't know you. I don't know if it's bad if it's not my friends, but I just don't care if, if, if I don't, if there's like only books winning awards that I'm like, what is this? I'm just kind of like, whatever. No, good um, is happening to the people I know. Bad is, is I don't know you. Yeah, bad is I don't know What could be simpler go. than that? I can't see that going badly at all. Uh, yeah. Anyway, let's move on completely from this topic before I say something silly. Let's do. I'm excited to talk about, among other things, you know, uh, certain forms of like me and my people good, everyone else bad, as well as, you know, how to, how to avoid thinking uh, along such lines. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I am, I think especially interested today in people who are considering or contemplating do I break a tie completely? Do I have to disavow someone in order to break a tie completely? How much can I downgrade before we have to start talking about it? Um, do I have to like carry with me for the rest of my life a card explaining why I have cut ties with anyone I might ever have known? And I think just generally a sense of like, when does proximity start to turn into um, responsibility? Or, or uh, you know, when do ideas about certain types of social contamination come into play? And mm-hmm. um, it's it's fraught and interesting ground, I think. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to thinking about it with you because I like the way that you think. So the subject of this letter is, am I friends with an abuser? And the letter reads, I have a friend group of roughly 10 folks. We all work together at a nonprofit, parentheses. It's an in-the-trenches environment that has really brought us together over the past few years. This is not in the letter, but let's come back to that. I'm just marking that for, let's come back to that. Mm-hmm. The letter continues, it just became apparent that Jaina dated Carol secretly for a year now. Carol is younger than Jaina by six years and has been acting withdrawn, depressed, and isolated for a few months. It's finally come out that Jaina was emotionally abusive to Carol, treating her badly in the relationship and forbidding Carol from telling any of us what was going on, 
thus forcing Carol to deal with this unhealthy dynamic completely by herself. We didn't even know Carol was queer. Ooh, let's come back to that too. Continued. Uh, Carol finally came to us with the news and we were horrified. Jana has always presented herself as pretty progressive, emotionally healthy, and socially intelligent. So to hear she was so cruel to Carol is shocking. On the other hand, Jana has also been dropping hints that this was a two-way street and Carol was, quote, needy, always anxious, and emotionally immature, unquote. I have no idea what truly happened. I imagine there is some truth to both sides, but it's clear that our two friends hurt each other deeply. They now refuse to be in the same room together. Beside causing a rift in the group as people try to figure out which side to take, I'm also deeply concerned that Jana was emotionally abusive. And if we continue to be friendly with her, we're communicating to Carol that her pain does not matter to us. I don't even know where to go from here. Can our friend group come back from this? How should we handle Jaina? What duty do we have to protect Carol? Please help. You know, I, I, I could have really edited out the part at the beginning, which was we all work together at a nonprofit and the in-the-trenches environment has brought us together. What could possibly go wrong? Uh, yeah, not that this couldn't happen in other workplaces or other contexts, but I do simply want to note, letter writer, that you say the in-the-trenches environment has brought together this group of friends. I'm sure you know this. In-the-trenches is a reference to trench warfare from the horrible, horrible trauma of World War I where millions died. Uh, they, they, they referred to it as the lost generation. I mean, that's... I, I understand that you were you know, using a, a figure of speech, but it, it feels meaningful to me that this friend group has sort of coalesced around a dysfunctional work environment and you have a sense of being uh, similarly embattled as, as co-combatants during wartime might be, which I think might be coloring some of your reactions here, which is like, we've got to keep the unit together. I don't- Yeah, we got got to keep the unit together. Yeah, don't want to take sides unless we absolutely have to. Coach um, says, I got to take one for the team. Yeah, you know? yeah, like, uh, what? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's so many layers to this that I do first want to acknowledge, letter writer, that I am very sympathetic to this problem because I understand your moral concern is genuine. And I don't think, I don't think you're trying to pull a fast one uh, on purpose, at least, of how do I get the family to stay together and shut up about problems? So I do want to acknowledge that. I think you're trying. But my little flags started raising my little tiny red flags because I have all these little red flags. You can picture them kind of just coming coming up behind me. Started raising when I read that you were all coworkers. And um, uh, secret coworker romance that went south in ways that may have been abusive within a work context that sounds like it fosters unhealthy boundaries and dynamics in the first place is kind of, is that asking too much to start there? Not at all. I think it was interesting. You know, we all work together was the last sort of reference to their relationships. Uh, and I'm curious, are you all on exactly the same level? Does anybody manage anybody else? Mm -hmm. um, I'm especially curious about whether, you know, the letter writer mentions that Carol is younger, um, but not like, did they work really closely together? Were they in the same department? Were, were they, did one of them supervise the other? You know, I, I just, right. I'm, I'm curious about those dynamics there. Um, those feel like relevant details. I also feel like saying six years is, is implicitly an age gap tells me a lot about everyone's age. So if uh, Carol is like 20, 
and and Jaina is 26, I can understand how in that stage of life, those six years can be significantly different for people. Like not enough that I would like panic right off the bat, but enough that if someone was like, oh, there's actually six years between them, I'd be like, okay, sure. You know, maybe the younger one, this is maybe perhaps her first job too. I don't know that. Um, There's a point at which age-wise, I'm not sure that matters. And I'm more interested in, in like Danny said, like um, just like what are their workplace positions? Uh, if, if these are lateral coworkers, a six-year difference when you're, you know, 30 and 36, it's like, I guess, I mean, it's real, but it's not the same Yeah, at all. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get too off track uh, in terms of like, how do you want to handle your ongoing friendships? Um, but, you know, I would just encourage you letter writer to, consider in the long run, do you want to pursue other professional options that don't involve, you know, we've all like trauma bonded uh, because we have a terrible workplace. And then there's also like horrible personal implosions that, uh, you know, there are, there are other ways to think about your workplace, um, I guess is all I wanted to mention. And uh, while it shouldn't necessarily be the first reaction you have to this, maybe look for a different job at some point. Yeah, I know. I also was sort of like, oh, get out of this line of work, whatever it is. Uh, even though I know right now, letter writer, what you're worried about is how do you be a good friend? And actually, actually, I can't separate that advice from how to be a, a comrade. And in this case, if you are coworkers, the comrade thing to do is to deeply evaluate who has, um, who's you know in the economically vulnerable position. Is one of these personalities going to have her career tanked or derailed um, by this situation? And maybe that's age, maybe that's experience. It could be the case that, you know, whether or not you think your coworker slash friend was or wasn't abusive, you could say, hey, you know what? Like Carol's taking this a lot harder than you. And you don't seem to want to be in the same room as her because you find her annoying. She doesn't want to be in the same room as you because she's afraid of you. Those are really different. You know, like, this is her job that she has to come to. And you can roll your eyes at her and call her needy. But, like, regardless of what did or didn't happen, this is this is a much more significant experience for her. Maybe that's age. Maybe it's that she has a junior position. I think you do have to weigh those things, Right. And uh, I think you can you can do that in a way that sticks up for Carol that is actually completely separate from whether or not you think Jenna was abusive. Like, you might decide, I know this is kind of like hard to hear, but you might decide that you don't have enough information to make that call. You can still make the right call as a coworker. You can still protect your coworker from, um, from things like that. So I don't want that to get lost because I think that does get lost in a lot of uh, coworker friendships where people forget that they're also coworkers mm-hmm. and everybody wants to take friend sides and everybody wants to stick up for their friend. And it's like, we're also kind of talking about people's livelihoods here. There are a lot of situations in which you can make friends at work and you feel really close to people. And then when shit hits the fan, they kind of let you get fired because you got depressed because someone was mistreating you in your life and they kind of didn't stick up for you. Like these are, that, those things matter. So, so do look after the professional situation too. Uh, and and you can you can be a really good comforting friend and make the right moral decision and insight about who was or wasn't abusive. And you can still really drop the ball as a as a colleague. 
So do consider both of those. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think I, I also want to start to really get into the specifics of what the letter writer asked, because I do think I have some suggestions on that front that while I, I don't want to suggest that that will make everything incredibly clear, straightforward, and easy for the letter writer, I, I do think I, I'm a little, I, I want the letter writer to be able to move out of this posture right now of, I have no idea what happened. I imagine mm-hmm. there's some truth. Everyone seems hurt because to me, I worry that that could curdle into it is impossible to learn more about what happened. It is impossible for me to use my own personal judgment um, to weigh some sort of sense of uh, did someone cause like beyond the sort of average amount of harm that someone in a relationship can cause someone else and like unduly like take advantage of somebody else's position at work, for example, to say you can't tell any. I mean, like it would make such a difference if you're it's already fraught if your colleague and lover says, I don't want to tell anyone about our relationship, but it's a, it's another thing entirely if the person telling you that is also your manager or simply a manager, you know? So like, again, use your judgment there. You know what Carol's job is. You know what Jana's job is. We don't. I think that will be relevant information as you try to weigh how you think about that request of, or demand of don't tell anyone we're seeing each other. Um, that's a, that's a pretty big difference. Like to, to me, being needy or always anxious are in a really different category from my partner said, you can't tell anyone we're in a relationship for a year. You know? Yeah. Um, one of those is just clearly crueler than the other. And that's not to say that a needy or anxious person can't hurt someone or, or, or be difficult. It's just those are two really different things. Like one of those is pretty clearly fucked up. Yeah. I definitely think you need to find out what did your coworkers mean by um, Jana forbade Carol from telling us what was going on. Did she specifically forbid Carol from saying she was in a relationship with her? Or was it don't tell our coworkers about our fights, right? Um, because, you know, don't tell our coworkers about the fact that I have all these mean things that I've said to you is is like really pretty clear-cut, like, messed-up, abusive, manipulative tactics, from my point of view, versus um, I don't know that we should tell our coworkers that we're in a relationship because I actually don't understand the ramifications at work myself, and I think we should right. make this decision together. That's that's a really good point. It's a potentially reasonable request that may have, um, you may have part of, the, part of the info on. And so, you know, if I were in a relationship at work with that kind of a dynamic, I might also be like, oh, should we be open about this? Or is this like kind of against the rules? Or is this really going to be messed up for our work relationships? That is actually a legitimate conversation worth having. Um, so I, it matters to me how that caution was communicated. Yeah, that's no, that's, that's really useful. I think part of what's challenging here is because these are also all work relationships, you're not in quite the same position you might be if they were only friendships where I would say, you know, here's where I think you can and should go back to each of them and ask if they're interested or available and having follow-up conversations. Because again, since this is work, you will need to be a little bit more reserved and careful about such a request. But I certainly think, for example, you can say to Carol, is there anything that you would like me to do that would be helpful to you? And you don't have to commit yourself to doing it, but you just say like, uh, you know, I'm I'm worried that we might communicate to Carol that her pain doesn't matter to us. Yeah, so uh, tell her so, that it matters. <laughs> yeah, so so tell her, 
again, not like in the middle of the lunchroom or something, like don't, don't interrupt the middle of a meeting to do this. But since you are already close and already talk together outside of work, I think say, because again, it's not super clear to me if the letter writer has actually spoken to Carol. It says, the letter says it's finally come out. Um, you know, uh, Carol came to a few of us with the news, but it's sort of like the, the letter writer talks about themselves and the rest of these friends, like they're sort of a, a single entity. Yeah, and, the um, Yeah, the, 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 the friend hive. And I'm just curious, like, have you spoken to her directly? Have you ever said, I'm so sorry that you have been suffering and feeling isolated? Is there something that I can do to be useful to you? Right. Because that's a pretty straightforward, that doesn't like overcommit you to saying like, I, I will, you know, um, it, it, it's not an overcommitment. It's not an intrusive series of questions. It's not like, now give me a list of everything bad that your ex did so I can determine whether or not you are allowed to feel angry. It is simply an appropriate response that you can have. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think something that does get lost in a lot of conversations about abuse is that we've sort of turned abuse into a noun where mm. like people have oh, my abuser, you know, my abuser did this, my abuser did that. And um, I've, I've been watching this cultural shift uh, from not talking about these things at all whatsoever, which was very, very bad towards talking about them, but in a way that's very deterministic. And I think there, I sense a little fear in this letter uh, from the letter writer about their own judgment. So they made a character judgment of Jaina that is now called into question. And that in and of itself is scary mm-hmm. uh, and embarrassing and um, confusing. So I, letter writer, I think if you actually want to be a good friend to both of them and you think you have any kind of standing with Jaina, maybe talk to her about those sorts of behaviors. If you feel like you have so intensive a relationship with these people that you can have input on each other's lives, then be like, listen to her. Um, and potentially you will discover or not that even she might even tell on herself without knowing it, that some of the things that she tries to rationalize or explain, you'll be like, mm, I'm actually getting some reading between the lines here. I'm putting some pieces together. You behaved in ways that were abusive towards our coworker and friend. This yeah. is very messy. Um, there are ways to be a good friend to Carol that involve remaining in contact with Jana and remaining friends with her um, to actively work on these things. If you think that she means well and might have some really nasty habits behind closed doors, I actually think people can be helped by, um, by the active involvement of friends. And, and this, is, this is the thing that's really hard for uh, me personally to talk about because I think there is this very real sense that like if someone is an abuser, I must remove myself from any relationship with them perceived or actual. I don't, you know, approve of that behavior, all these other things. Uh, And it's like, if you, if your emotional stakes in this matter are, I want my friends to stop hurting each other and Mm -hmm. not, I'm afraid of being perceived as, as, as like approving of this behavior, put aside like people potentially thinking that like, you think this is cool. And like continue to have a relationship with Jenna and work on that with her. Maybe you're not her therapist and you don't have to be, but uh, a support system can actually work in two directions. Yeah. And I mean, I also want to leave a lot of room just because we don't have a lot of details here. No. Um, you may find letter writer that as you learn more details that you would contest, uh, you know, 
a definition of this as abusive, you might find that you would consider it merely cruel. Um, Whatever that merely means. <laughs> shitty or, you know, uh, you know, you are, you are entitled to use your own judgment here is what I am saying. But to say that it would be impossible for me to learn anything or that it is poss- impossible for me to draw a distinction between, you know, isolation or control, potential isolation or potential control versus dropping hints that my ex was anxious is like, I what does that mean? That, yeah. You know, to me, again, that's not necessarily, I, I don't want to say like only somebody who had been committing abuse would act that way because I think that can take you into a series of like logical traps pretty quickly of like, aha, you know, that that's not necessary. But like, if she is dropping hints. You know what? I don't know what that means, what dropping hints is. You know, I, I got to say like, I don't, we, we to, drop to hints me, that when is our birthdays good. are, you know? Yeah. If anything, and again, I realize this is your colleague, so you do want to tread carefully, but I, th- I think if she drops a hint around you, I would say, you know, if you want to have a conversation about what happened in that relationship, I am available to talk to you and to hear your perspective. I can tell you that I've heard some of Carol's perspective and it troubles me. I'm worried. And I do not like that you have been dropping hints that she was needy and anxious because the implication there seems to me to be, therefore, she deserved to be treated cruelly. If that is what you are saying, I want you to say it. I want you to affirm it, not just hint at it, um, because then you and I are going to have some conflict. I'm going to tell you that that's bad. You know, like, yep, I'm going to tell you that that's bad and I'm not going to let you do it to anybody else. Yeah, you know? I really think you have grounds here to to challenge her on these hints. I think she has been doing wrong. I think that might be an implication that she is also doing other things wrong, although I don't want to say that it's a you know mathematical proof. Um, I don't like that. That I read that part in your letter and I thought, that's troubling. Yeah, I I do get the impression that there is some kind of power differential and I wish that I had more information besides six years of age, which only by making several serial assumptions about everybody being quite young can I arrive at the conclusion that there's other stuff. But like, it's like there's a reading of this letter that tells me that, that actually tells me something that is just awkward and not, you know, and, and like mostly raises other questions about like the group dynamic at work in general. And there are also some pretty obvious readings of this letter that are just like, oh yeah, Janice, Janice bad. <laughs> Got to, yeah. uh, Got to deal with this. Um, I just, I don't understand how you would stop talking to her. That's the other problem. It's like, if if the support that Carol needs is stop talking to this person, you all work there? But but she hasn't asked that. You know, Carol hasn't, it's, it, all that the letter writer says is that um, they don't want to be in the same room as each other, which okay. is, they, they have both communicated this, either directly or indirectly. And I don't so, get the sense that this is interfering with work though, is it? Yeah. I just, mean, just party time. The, yeah, the letter writer doesn't say this is making things that were complicated. The letter writer says, can our friend group come back from this? No, no of course not. not. No. Like, no. That, what a ridiculous question. No, and they I, definitely I'm sorry, can't. letter writer, like, I don't want to be harsh. I realize that you're sad for a number of reasons and, and you have reason to be sad. But no, your friend group's not going to come back for this. All 10 of you are not going to hang out again. Jen and Carol are not going to become cool. Um, that's over. Um, that's and that's, yeah sad, but you cannot bring it back by denying reality. So no, your friend group cannot come back from this. I'm sorry, more than that loss. How should we handle Jana? Well, you should use your best judgment. 
You should ask Carol how you can support her. You should consider whether you're prepared to do what she asks. And at the very least, if she asks you something that you feel that you cannot do, I think you owe it to her to be honest and say, I'm sorry, this might disappoint and hurt you. It might even affect our friendship, but I'm not going to do that. You know, you you should at least be honest rather than sort of like evasive or try to avoid learning more so you never have to make a judgment call and try to hide your friendship with each of them from the other. Like that way is, I think, guaranteed to pan out quite badly. Yeah. Um, Um, And yeah, I don't envy your position, letter writer. I I will say that um, I can relate to the sort of like euphoric, uh, messed up dysfunctional bond that can happen with a group of people who are going through something really stressful and dysfunctional together. Um, I've had a few jobs that approached that. And um, I wonder if part of this isn't just that you recognize that these friendships don't necessarily have a lot going for them besides the job. Uh, My husband and I call this camp friends. The -hmm. friends you make at camp and you think that you're going to keep in touch and then you don't because the context in which you became friends, as soon as it's gone, you realize that, um, you know, that actually was the basis of the friendship and it's fine. Mm-hmm. You know, you actually don't have to, you know, I mean, Lord uh, of the permanently... Flies is about camp friends. <laughs> Lord of the Flies is about camp friends. You don't have to permanently bond with everybody. I think um, people really, really want uh, their professional lives to be like the office or something. And it just isn't, and it shouldn't be. And I find it really uncomfortable when people take these like media romantic comedies about work. Cause that is like, perf- like workplace romantic comedy where the, the, the romantic comedy is with the workplace itself. And they like kind of aspire to, don't aspire to that. That's actually really messed up. Um, and so I would encourage you to take a big step back, honestly evaluate the, personal and professional consequences for everyone involved. Honestly, evaluate how it is that you're so involved um, and what's at stake. And and you you just also go from there. So you, you do need to talk to your friends. And at a certain point, you'll have to realize that if you are playing therapist or HR for your friends, that's also a problem. And so there might also be limits to the conversations that you can have. And you have to take that seriously. Yeah. So again, that last question, what duty do we have to protect Carol? I don't know. Um, But you start by asking what Carol wants and then you consider whether or not you can give her any of the things that she asks. And then you uh, try to balance honesty and kindness as you tell her either I can do this or I cannot do that or I want this for you, but as a coworker, I can't be the one who does it. Um, be honest and straightforward to the best of your ability about what you are and aren't prepared to do for her. It would be better to have that, even if that conversation felt painful, than to just sort of hope she never notices that you don't bring this up. And by the way, if you ask her if she wants to talk about it and she says, no, I don't, then, you know, respect it. Take a step back. Part of what might be hard there is you might feel a sense of, but now I might never know just exactly what to think of this situation. And I would just say that's one of those unpleasant reminders that life is a rich tapestry, which is that sometimes we do not get the full story of somebody else's experience. Right. And we can't force people to tell us. Yeah. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be callous. I know how I sound. And I think, I think one of the things that to keep in mind is if it sounds like I'm unwilling to commit to like, well, it sounds like there's a bad guy and a good guy and you should just, Mm -hmm. you know, follow the playbook. It's that, uh, it's not that I think anybody here is lying. I don't. I want to put it out there that I don't think somebody is 
you know, twirling their <laughs> mustache and, and, and like manipulating everyone in this great scheme that will become very easy to resolve. I'm, I'm trying to gently remind you that this is actually a way bigger mess than you even seem to think it is. And I would encourage you to perhaps reevaluate your line of work and how you make friends and whether or not intimacy, um, born out of conflict is maybe not a great starting point in a workplace or social circle. Yeah. If, if your workplace is even jokingly a war trench, that might be a hint that some of the dynamics that people consider normal or necessary are in fact, neither. It's neither. And I will say that, um, people that I know who have really healthy attitudes about work, um, and some of these people work in extremely messed up situations they're first responders in some way or they're you know like disaster relief kind of things like they they see actual trenches kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um some of them are very compartmentalized and uh they don't have work friends or they um sometimes even struggle to be sensitive outside of work to to things and like that's hard too but basically they've made they've made like a slightly better negotiation, which is to not uh, give their entire self-image and self-worth to something where it sounds like uh, something really important or urgent has to happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so I I would encourage you to sort of reevaluate your expectations there too. My last thought on the subject is simply, I want the letter writer not to think of uh, a rift in the friend group as the worst thing that can happen. Mm-hmm. Because as long as you feel like the most important thing is that we maintain like group cohesion, um, then you will likely end up compounding pain for either Carol or Jana or both and potentially either ignore obvious pain and distress from someone who's been seriously hurt mm-hmm. um, or unfairly um, push out or malign or shun somebody who, you know, has been misjudged um, simply because your goal is to keep the group together. Mm-hmm. Which would actually be a weirdly abusive uh, group tactic because that would form a pattern. And a long-term pattern of dismissing and negating problems is abusive, hard and mm-hmm. fast. Yeah. Yeah. The missing stare dynamic um, is, uh, it's a real one. I do want to step back from this particular situation and talk a little bit. You have graciously agreed to uh, read from something that you have written recently um, for Neon Superhighway, your newsletter, um, about trauma as morality. And I was wondering if you would read a a section of it for us now. I will. Um, Is it all right if I give a slight introduction to where this is coming from? Okay. So I'm a person who cares very much about um, the way that we talk about and handle trauma, which I have a personal stake in this, obviously, uh, if that isn't clear. But one of the things that I've been struggling with in talking about it with other people is realizing that people have different definitions of the words. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but one of the good things about um, mental health language becoming more mainstream is that discussions about mental health are becoming more mainstream, which I think is generally good. One of the struggles, which is very frustrating and sometimes actively painful to me, is that people are just picking up terminology wherever 
And so it's it's hard because sometimes I realize I'm talking to somebody and we're talking past each other because they learned, you know, they may have learned a certain set of terms and ideas in a therapeutic setting and another person there learned them from Tumblr and another person there kind of just like learned them from talking to their friends. And I want to emphasize that that doesn't imply that I think the person who learned it from Tumblr has the wrong distorted version and the person who learned it in therapy has the right correct version. That's why it's hard. It's just that a lot of people are coming into a language about mental health that is from all over the place. And we're using very limited vocabulary to talk about a lot of different things. So mm-hmm. I've been trying to write through some of that. And I was originally sitting down to write something about um, trigger warnings. And it occurred to me that I needed to actually define what I meant by trigger and trauma first. So I wrote this, I have a very sporadic substack. Um, and I wrote this thing called Trauma is Morality. So sorry for the long introduction, but it, it does matter to me that people know where I'm coming from. I um, don't have a stake in like disproving the people's stated trauma needs at all. It's quite the opposite. Okay. Because almost everyone defaults to binary thinking, scenes and circles that care about social justice or mental health or what have you can have funny little inverted rules like how it's important to believe every single survivor account and accommodate every single stated limit and need. In addition to being impossible, this sucks for different reasons, but it does come from a much kinder place. I would still rather be surrounded by people who are struggling to accept the inevitability of bullshit stunts pulled in the name of need versus people who are outright hostile to the idea of need. The binary, which is occupied by both mindsets, which I recognize could themselves become a false binary of my own making, is one of morality. Cruelty treats trauma as a personal moral failure, and therefore, kindness must treat trauma as a personal moral achievement. See also, this sucks for different reasons, oppression Olympics, and so forth. But it's not necessary to understand trauma this way, and I think we should stop. It has become understood among people who mean well and struggle with it. It has been internalized as a receptive role and as such a coherent identity class. Because it plays out this way, it's both knowingly misused and unknowingly misused. Consider the misuse of triggers as a rhetorical device to attempt to contain or shut down negativity, disagreement, confusion, and plain old awkwardness with one's own stakes in the subject at hand. There are so many specific examples of this that I don't even know where to start, honestly. But because of this misuse, among those interested in kindness and justice, I have noticed the pendulum has lately swung a bit in favor of denying certain claims to trauma for the sake of a more robust kindness and justice. For example, some art on the internet, which is tagged with a trigger warning around race, but it actually seems to be largely about the tagger's own white fragility. Thus, it perpetuates racism in the name of some nebulous form of safety, which is about the oldest trick in the book when it comes to white supremacy. Therefore, it's very understandable to try and maneuver to discern trauma from fragility. Yes, I have read enough of Conflict is Not Abuse to be lukewarm about it. I have read a lot of that author's books, and sometimes she frustrates me with her general tendency to stake insightful claims on really poor and disjointed examples. I think she is worth reading in order to have interesting disagreements about uh, with people that you trust. But anyway, the impulse to sort trauma from entitlement, fragility, laziness, and so forth 
loops us back into the fundamental distortion of trauma into a strictly receptive role within a moral category of experiences. It reifies a binary belief that there is legitimate trauma, which can be set apart from frivolous, harmful bullshit that therefore isn't trauma. Something adjacent to that no true Scotsman fallacy, maybe. Because the thing about trauma is that it is not synonymous with power or virtue. Trauma forms and operates within power, but it does not belong to one clean point along power's axis, and it cannot bestow virtue. This dimension of trauma is very hard to discuss with people you care about not being cruel to, because it gets easily and understandably misconstrued as some kind of psychosocial both sides. Another way to put it could be that we know that abuse can cause trauma, for example, and maybe that abusing can be caused by trauma. But we're uncomfortable with recognizing and discussing that abusing, for no clear motivation at all, can also cause trauma. Or maybe the short version is that just about anything can cause trauma. It manifests in perpetrators, in bystanders, in benefactors. People get sick, so to speak, for all kinds of reasons. I feel uncomfortable just typing that out. I feel like I'm creating excuses that I will be misunderstood as an apologist. But that is the moralistic binary. That is a distortion that does cause me harm when I choose to reinforce it. And I'm trying not to do that. Uh, thank you. I'm glad that you wrote uh, something extended on this subject, if only because I think it will be useful to our earlier letter writer. I hope who so. It seems like has gotten a little jumpy um, as a result of hearing words like trauma and abuse and is kind of flipping out into like, is that simply an imperative? Right. Um, or should I just ignore it because the idea of treating it as an imperative would change my life too much? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I I can't possibly, you know think about this or use judgment or critical thinking or um, follow my values in a way that would feel true or real. And um, I think this is a much more useful way of trying to sort through how can I be helpful? How can I be honest? How can I be truthful? Um, and how can I help someone who might need help? I, I really hope that that is helpful. Um, I know that sometimes I have kind of a left field first feedback on things. And I can sound very clinical and I can sound very detached, um, but uh, I care very much about this issue. And it's something that I I really want us to have uh, broader vocabulary for. And I I do think it's unfortunate that the default of not caring about abuse and trauma and pain and like shutting people up and telling them to just bury problems, that is the default in which nothing is done. And so it can be really, really hard to arrive at uh, emotionally completely different space that looks a whole lot like don't do anything yet. Um, And that's really hard. That is hard. If you have learned that nobody ever does anything about um, abuse, therefore, I care, I should do something. And you realize that the situation, quote, is more complicated you're like, oh my God, I sound just like the jerk that really doesn't care and says it's more complicated than that because he really doesn't care. But I care mm-hmm. and it is more complicated. And it's like, I'm doing the same thing. That is, that's actually hard. That's just, it's that ugly. And that's yeah. actually- Sometimes people say it's complicated to mean I don't want to do anything uh-huh. and I want you to shut up. Uh-huh. And sometimes people say it's complicated because complications exist. And, um, you know, I think- 
I, I wish I could offer people advice that would always result in you will never feel uncomfortable or do the wrong thing ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I simply can't. Um, and when you feel that you have been able to choose the right uh, insofar as you've been given the ability to see the right, then you you should pursue it to the best of your ability and be prepared to defend the choices that you have made if need be. And I'm pretty sure that that was just part of the second inaugural address. Um, so I'm sorry for Wait, introducing <laughs> that. Um, like with courage to pursue the right as God gives us the ability to see the right or something. Um Right before he launches into the, uh, you know, with uh, malice toward none bit. Uh Uh-huh. You know, that bit. Oh, yeah, you know, the bit. No, I'm listening. I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's an expression as, as, as a result. Right? Sure. I think it's, yeah, I think it's commonly, people are always saying that. People are always, I, you know, what is it, what is the meme that's like, I'm always saying this. And then you say it about something that no one's saying. Uh, yeah, I'm always saying that. Always saying yeah. that. How's your uh, How's your latest game going? My latest game? Yes, Schmucks. Oh, <laughs> Schmucks. Um, yeah. So the last thing that I wrote and released um, is a role playing game called Over Easy. And I uh, made it specially for a platform called Moat, Moat Stories, which is, I think, MoatStories.com. And they have like an online platform that does um, that does like real-time role-playing in, in a really neat way where, you know, if you say, I do this, your friends on their computer screens see it in the third person. So it it sort of parses the grammar and it translates the game into like a readable story as you're playing. Really neat. So uh, I wrote a game from them called Over Easy. It's a diner heist. You and your friends are a bunch of silly nicknamed people in the town who are trying to save your beloved uh, novelty roadside attraction from demolition. Definitely has nothing to do with urban renewal or gentrification whatsoever. No, sir. Um, And so you have to, through various uh, trials and tricks, uh, get it out of the back of a junk truck while the truck driver stops for dinner at the little highway diner um it 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 was (laughs) a lot of fun to make and i was very inspired by an enormous orange fiberglass tyrannosaurus rex that used to sit along uh the side of route one in massachusetts and is no longer there all right somebody took it no they they developed the mini golf course that was there into condos Mm -hmm. and now the t-rex is apparently on the property somewhere but it's not visible from the highway anymore which was the whole point is that you drove up Route 1 and there was an orange fiberglass T-Rex. So RIP T-Rex, if you're from Massachusetts and you know what the Route 1 T-Rex was, great. If you're not, you're thinking, what is he talking about right now? Um, But it's just that kind of game. It's the kind of game about weird local stuff that you love for no reason. I love it for many reasons. Julian, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and um, helping us to think about fraught, sad, difficult subjects without totally freezing up and say, I can never make any decisions. I can never move ahead. I just have to say it's complicated and then levitate off the ground for the rest of my life. That would be so great if I could just evaporate out of any uncomfortable situation. You know, complication is often an invitation to start thinking and not a reason to stop thinking. That's so hard though. That was my best line. So I'm just going to close it there because I don't think I'm going to top that. That was like the one good thing I said today. Yeah, that's really good. Um, Thank you very, very much for inviting me on the show. Um, This was great. 
Um, I'm actually really moved that you or anybody finds finds value in this stuff I have to say at all, because I, you know, I, I'm only writing it down because I think it will be useful to other people. Um, and so when it is, yeah. that's that's what counts to me. And um, yeah, it's been real. Uh, everybody, um, everybody, don't be afraid to think, including questioning your image of yourself or your financial literacy. Both of these things will treat you well in the long term. Oh yeah, we never even got to your Suze Orman um, alter ego. Next time you come on the show, yeah. I will save you Suze Orman style questions I and you will be... love it. I love version of talking yourself. about money because everybody is really uncomfortable talking about money and that's so bad. <laughs> so just picture Suze, spirit of Suze, trans mask Suze. Done. God. It's frankly not difficult to imagine. Difficult. She has a real transmasculine vibe. Do you think so? Um, I think so. I mean, not not like a, a sort of like immediately visually apparent one, but I think there's a real sort of, um, yeah, I, I, I think there is a kind of transmasculinity present. Okay. Suze, if you're listening to this, yeah. please don't be mad at us. We love you. That has to do with like <laughs> the hustle. Again, not that uh, transmasculinity <laughs> is the only means of getting into hustle, but mm. like literal her her brand of hustling, I think, has real transmasculine resonance. I love that. Like, I love the idea of uh, cis celebrities having trans whatever energy just because they like have like <laughs> just because they have like a hyper personality. <laughs> it feels like that Aladdin song from the beginning of Aladdin, where he's just like, "I'm always on the run, and I need to look out for myself," and that's kind of her. Thing, yes. which again, she's a she's a very very wealthy lady. I, I don't mean so that she's rich. an actual urchin robbing people, but the like sort of like you know Aladdin style. Aladdin is a very transmasculine sort of vibe to have, wait, and wait, she's got that vibe. What? Maybe we should end the show here. Not explain any of that. Done. Done. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. I, I don't know why I was so interested uh, in that moment and saying, like, allegedly. Um, I, I think just because I guess this person is sort of asking, like, why do I feel so much obligation around the, these people? And, you know, my guess is that you have not all taken, like, those home kit DNA tests. Like, you believe that you share DNA, but it's, it's also <laughs> sort of like the structure is such that, like, everyone's mom says we're related. So we just don't question that. Like, you don't know that. Yeah, I guess Maybe you don't. don't share DNA at all. I don't. I don't think that it especially matters one way or the other. I just think it can be helpful to sort of like 
not think of it as as a given that you shared genetic lines so much as just like, well, we've all agreed that because of, you know, uh, legal marriages and and legal uh, kinship ties, we we should share DNA. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.